So we, as you know, are in the Beatitudes. And that's chapter 5 of Matthew. And uh, we're looking at the pure in heart today, for they shall see God blessed. Verse 8, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Just as a, uh, a backdrop of what has already been covered here, uh, remember that, that I've said that as the uh, Ten Commandments are to the Old Covenant, the Beatitudes are to the New Covenant. As the Ten Commandments were external um, guides, uh, were a, a guides, guidelines for external behaviors, for um, modifying our behaviors and, and comporting them with God's ways, the Beatitudes have to do with the interior journey of the soul and the heart. They have to do with the condition of the heart. And the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount comes out of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the, are the, the um, incubator for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so you will see uh, the rest of his teachings of the Sermon on the Mount linking back to at least one, if not many, of the Beatitudes. And so what we see here is a descending stairwell, a, a descending staircase, beginning with the first of the Beatitudes, just as a, like a three or four minute review here. Uh, he begins in the first three Beatitudes with an emptying out of ourselves is what it's about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. And we talked about this mourning as not just being the mourning that we all as citizens of earth encounter in our losses and in our hurts, but the mourning that comes when I began to get in touch with what I am. Uh, and we see this alluded to in, uh, in James, the book of James in the New Testament, and in several places, um, Psalm uh, 51. Um, I believe it's Amos, it may be Joel 2.12, uh, where it talks about rend your heart and not your garments. Um, come in to grips with what we are in relation to God. Now this is an emptying out process. This is not just a, a one moment arrival. Oh, I've got that. Let's go on to the next one. <laughs> it is a sloppy descent into the truth of who God is and what I am. And we'll look at that even more today. Because as we empty out, as we, as we come more and more into authentic humility, of really recognizing uh, the word humility has to do with, with being low to the ground. Uh, but truly that, understanding that I, you know, we, we came from the clay. We were molded and fashioned from clay. And, and we are the creator, created. We're not the creator. And as we come to understand that in deeper and deeper ways, there is a deepening authentic humility that no longer competes in the same way we have competed with ourselves, with others, with the world. We begin to shed those things. And so the Beatitudes, the first three are a shedding process, a shedding of the illusion that we live under sometimes that we are more important than we, than we are. Um, 
realizing that God is the sovereign majesty and we are his subjects and coming into a, an agreement with that. That's a shedding process. And so coming into that hu humility and that mourning of what I am, it produces in me a behavior. The meekness is the fountain that comes out of the reservoir of humility. Meekness is the way in which a humble person responds to his world. Uh, Christ said, I am meek and lowly. He was speaking as son of man. Philippians 2 uh, said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation and took upon himself the form of a man. And so in the Mount of Transfiguration, you see his true original form bursting forth. You see his true original form bursting forth. He was transfigured, transformed. And so we talked, I think, something last week, that we have a new form within us. We have a new form. Once we accepted Christ as our Savior, he radicalized us. And he placed within the form of man his form. So that when in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, be therefore transformed by the renewing of your mind, the word there is transfigured. The same word used on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let that inner form in you burst forth into visible expression. Be transfigured. But that has been gift for you and me. It is not something we have aspired to, nor is it something that we can achieve. It is not something we can finally fine-tune our walk and rise up to the mystical level of some sort of hybrid human caught between heaven and earth <laughs> and, and looking really pretty good. We can do that for a while, but then just let, let your you know, six-year-old become a teenager, and then you'll begin to realize <laughs> our young adult who comes back home and lives forever in your house. <laughs> you begin to realize you're not quite as sanctified as you thought by this upward mobility, uh, the climbing of the upper spiritual ladder. And so what we look at here as we come in to this emptying out process is that we find, as if we get really honest with ourselves, that we can't even live out chapter 5 of Matthew, much less 6 and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> we can't do what he is saying for us to do, and that is to love our enemies, pray for them on a consistent basis, turn the other cheek. I mean, we can for a while, sometimes, when we're really pumped. <laughs> I've got this now. <laughs> I think I shared with you all at one point how I went through this really intense time of wanting just to, to be with, the, you know, the, the Lord's person, whatever he wanted. And so I would get up, you know, early to have my quiet time with the Lord. And this was when the children were, you know, five, six, seven, four, somewhere in there. And uh, I remember it saying, Lord, this day is yours. Just do with me what you will. 
And within 15 minutes after the children had gotten up, that was out the door. <laughs> and so for three weeks it was that way, every day. And finally, you know, I would say, Lord, I'm I, I, you know, I, I want to take up the cross and follow you. I want to be yours. That was it. That was my mantra, taking up the cross and following Christ. And after three weeks of utter failure every morning, I, I, you know, I finally said, you know, if I just lived on an island by myself, I would be a really good Christian. <laughs> and so after three weeks of miserable failure, uh, the Lord spoke to me and he said, Brenda, you cannot take up the cross and follow me without first dealing with self. It's sequential. You have to deny yourself, take up the cross and follow. And he, he said, if you can't be second and be following me, you have to be third. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit really really put that in. It was not just in my head. It was, I, it was like, oh, the Job moment. Put my hand over my mouth. <laughs> uh, I am vile. And so uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit in a minute. The vileness is in comparison with God. You know, we can be righteous horizontally. Job was righteous horizontally. Even in God's in God's version of it, in Job 1, he said, have you considered Job? He's the most, he's, he's perfect in all his ways. But by the end of Job, he stands at the threshold of the Beatitudes. He is recognizing that in comparison with God, he is nothing. In comparison with God, he is nothing. Yes, he was the best horizontally. But the, righteous, the righteousness of man is as filthy rags in relation to that which is pure holiness. And so the instruction here on the Sermon on the Mount is this holy God come down to man to speak eternal truth to those who, of us who are made of the earth who are made of clay. And so he's saying here, he's turning the known world on its ear. He's turning the church on its ear. He's turning the, the religious community on its ear. And he's saying, what you have thought was true is not. Up is down and down is up. And he is saying here in the Beatitudes, that your life must be lived from the inside out. Not from the outside in. Not in an external expression, but in an interior condition. And so he is, he's speaking here of this emptying out process. And then once we have emptied out, or I need to rephrase that, as we are in the emptying out process more and more, I mean, we don't finally arrive one day. We can, we can arrive totally bankrupt, but not totally empty <laughs> of self. We can have these breaking moments, but this breaking process and this emptying out process is really an ongoing journey of the soul for you and me. But once we get more and more into an awareness of, um, of this journey, it creates in us, verse 6, a hunger and a thirst. 
You and I cannot have hunger and thirst if we have filled our, the stomach of our soul with junk food. Junk food may fill, but it never satisfies. And so what he's talking about here is letting go of those things in us that fill us but never satisfy us, that do not give us a hungering and thirst for the right things. And once we get into the hungering and thirsting, then we are filled. And the rest of the Beatitudes are having to do with what we are filled with. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about what we should be and can be filled with once we are getting ourselves out of the way. And so <clears throat> the merciful, what we looked at last week, is what God puts into us. As we have let go of ourselves and are we, are, we are in the deepening process of that journey, we begin to find ourselves less judgmental and more merciful. And that we don't just, as we talked about last week, show mercy. He says, blessed are the merciful. This is a whole new order of mankind that he is calling you and me into. And, and getting that is a major switch in the journey. It switches how we see what we are to be about. How we see ourselves as being called out and answering yes to this new way of seeing and new way of doing things. Not just as being merciful at times or showing mercy, but as being merciful people, being people of grace. That's how we stand out from the world. It's not so much being right on the issues because the Pharisees were right on the issues doctrinal dictators. They were right. And they let everybody know that they were right. And, and in a country where we're not persecuted as a church, I mean, there are you know, those places where that happens, but we're not persecuted like the rest of the world in the third world countries and <clears throat> all throughout history. We don't understand persecution. We, we don't, we're not there. So it's easy for us to be doctrinal dictators and see that as the way in which we stand out is to make sure that we convict the world of their wrong when they're wrong. But I think what Jesus is saying here is stand out by the, by the, the condition of your heart. Stand out by how people see you as a merciful people. Not judgmental. You see, judging and mercy don't go together. They don't. And not in, not in human cloth. Uh, it doesn't. So we now stand here in a purification of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And, and I don't think that's just a futuristic vision. Turn to Job 40. I think it has to do with the way we see, period. And who we see, period. Uh, 
let's go to 42. Uh, for um, about 36 chapters, Job has defended himself from his friends who've said, you must be doing something wrong, Job. God wouldn't have changed how he's dealing with you. He rewards the righteous. He no longer is rewarding you, therefore you must not be righteous. And Job kept saying, I have not changed. There's nothing in me that has changed. And Job was right on that. He was the same. He was the same person. And he said, I am righteous. I desire his word more than I desire food. I desire his will more than I desire food. And it's not just uh, an external behavior system. It is a condition of my heart. And it was. But in chapter 38, God begins at last to speak directly to Job. After all these chapters of silence, God has not spoken to Job. And in chapter 38, God begins to show Job who God is. He doesn't even address the wrestling match that Job is having within himself, with his friends, and with who God is. The God that he has known, that he has grown up with in the Jewish culture, if you can call it that at that time, because this may be the oldest book in the Bible, uh, it, it did, not, did not make room for a God who was no longer rewarding a righteous servant. So the image that Job had of God was in a, shattered in a thousand pieces at his feet. He didn't know who God was anymore or what he would and would not do. But he was still, he said, even if he slays me, I will still trust him. I am not going to let go of this God I have known. But by the time God begins to speak to him, he no longer addresses the wrestling match. He no longer addresses the anguish of his soul in the way that we would think a compassionate God should do. He simply starts drawing Job's vision to himself. And he says, where were you, Job? Tell me when I hung the earth on nothing. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and all the sons of God sang for joy? Tell me, Job, if you can. And he goes for two chapters in that mode. And at the end of that, in chapter 40, Job, I'm, we'll go back to 40. Job says... In verse 3, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Only in light of the majesty of the divine did Job see himself for what he truly was. Not comparative horizontally to the rest of man, but in relation to God, he was less than an ant in an anthill. In relation to God, once, once he had that comparison, he saw himself truly for what he was. And you go over here, and, and he makes another declarative statement in chapter 42. I have, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In all of this suffering, his heart had been purified. Purified of the false images that he had of himself and purified of the false images that he had of God, and yet he had remained faithful 
And as he saw God, he saw himself. Truly. And as he truly saw himself, his heart was broken. And he repented. The psalmist says in Psalm 51, you desire not sacrifice, yet, yet else I would give it. It is a broken and a contrite heart that you desire. And the Beatitudes are about a broken and a contrite heart. And when we have that breaking process spiritually going on in you and me, there will come a time where we will see God completely differently because our heart has been prepared to see him truly. If we are filled with ourselves or partially you know, cohabitating with God, God and ourselves cohabitating, we will not see him truly. So this journey that the Beatitudes is about, this journey of the soul, is about seeing God truly. And if my heart is being sanctified in a deepening way, I will see him here on earth as I will see him in heaven in a new way. And when we see God, then more comes to us, and we'll be hitting that in times to come. We become peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. And we see ourselves as radically different. And as we see God, then how we see others changes. How we relate to others changes. You see, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are about separating out the soul from the spirit in us. He came to a people who had lived solely from the soulish realm and who had seen through the prism of the soul, seen God through the prism of the soul, seen righteousness through the prism of the soul. And Jesus is saying for all of you soulish leaders of the church, for all you soulish followers, there is a different realm I call you to. And he didn't mince words in his first major exposition here um, on, on the truth of heaven. He just jumped right in. You all remember, uh, if you've been here, me talking about the difference between the soul and the spirit. Watch when he understands it as a three-tiered system. That this is the outermost man. Uh, the outer man, and uh, it's the physical. This is the soul or the inner man. And this is the innermost man or the spirit. Now the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are about us coming out of our soulish realm and living in the spirit. He doesn't tell us to live in the soul and walk in the soul 
and the fruit of the soul. He's talking about the fruit of this innermost man in us. Our spirit being knit with the Holy Spirit is in the innermost being of us. Out of the innermost being of them that believe will flow rivers of living water, John 7, 38 and 39. And uh, most of us as Christians live most of our life in the soulish realm. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God is sharp and quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and good for dividing asunder soul from spirit. As, as we've talked about before, let me sort of erase this. Normally I do this in different colors, but I don't have different colors, so you're just going to have to use your imagination to separate this out. This is where the religious part of man is. All men, except for a few intellectuals, believe that there is a God. And they worship him in the ritual that they understand they, they're supposed to approach God with. So church is often, most often, relegated to the soulish expression. Ritual, religious ritual comes out of the soulish realm. Our emotions and our personality are in the soulish realm, but that means they also register the, the scars, the darts and the arrows that come to us through life. The messages from those darts and arrows lodge in our soulish realm. Our mind and our will are sort of in the soulish realm. 